Hello, everybody. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. An important part of what we do here at Ministry Watch, especially with these extra episodes, is to bring to you important thought leaders who have things to say to both donors and ministry leaders that we think you'll find valuable. And that's why I'm pleased to have back on the program Phil Cook. Now, before I tell you what we're talking about today, I want to mention that Phil Cook is just a content machine. Uh, He produces all kinds of great stuff, and I'm constantly sort of struggling with whether and when I should have him back because I could probably have him back every week. Uh, He got his start in media working on the television program of Oral Roberts while he was still a student at Oral Roberts University. Over the years, he's become one of the nation's experts on the use of media in a Christian context. He's also been outspoken on the need for men and women of integrity in Christian ministries. And though he got his start working for one of the most famous televangelists in history, Oral Roberts, he has also been a thought critic of televangelist over the years. And even though he is a media and marketing expert, he says that evangelical Christianity doesn't really have a marketing problem. It has a character problem. Phil Cook is a working producer in Hollywood who also has a PhD in theology. He's the author of half a dozen books on media and marketing and has been a contributor to Fast Company, Forbes, and the Huffington Post. He's also a member of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences as well as the Producers Guild of America. Now, as promised, the articles that we're going to talk about today, two articles that Phil recently posted on his website. They deal with the compensation of church planters, and we also talk about another article uh, that talks about what to do with the books and videos and other material that you might have accumulated from teachers and speakers who have gotten themselves into trouble because of their immoral behavior. Do you just throw this stuff away? Do you give it away? Do you keep listening to it? Two vital topics, and Phil has some great insights. Well, Phil, welcome back to the program. I keep having you back because you keep writing good stuff, and uh, I appreciate that. And two articles that you've written in the last couple of weeks, one more recent than the other, but I'd like to talk about today. And uh, the first one is about uh, the salary of church planters, and that article was motivated, at least in part, uh, on your own personal experience and the personal experience of your father. Can you talk about that story, I mean, about your personal story and also about this article and why you were motivated to write it? Absolutely. I grew up as a pastor's kid in Charlotte, North Carolina, where you are. And uh, my dad never had more than three or 400 people at his church at any given moment. I mean, it spiked occasionally for a revival or some special event. But uh, most of his career, um, he had about three to 400 people in his church. And I can't recall a time he didn't have a second job. He always had a day job. Um, in his case, he started teaching school bus drivers. Back in those days, high school kids drove school buses. I can't find anybody that believes that these days. Everybody's shocked when I mentioned that. But uh, we had high school, we had bus driver clubs at our high school. And uh, high school kids literally drove the buses. And so my dad taught for years and years and years. And then later on, he became the chaplain of the sheriff's department there in Charlotte. But he always had a day job. My mom worked as a secretary on a used car lot. And that's not to say a pastor shouldn't make a good salary. But I've been thinking recently about church planters. And you know, as well as even better than me, that 
we've seen a lot of instances recently where church planners fell, either morally or financially or some other way. And I'm just wondering that I'm all for planting churches. I love church planting networks. We need to be you know, supporting churches out there and, and planting more. However, I wonder if we've gotten so sophisticated because most planting networks will pay a, you know, a church planters full-time salary for at least a year. They'll pay for the construction costs of a bill, you know, an, an initial building or the rental costs of a leasing a building. And I just wonder if that takes all the risk out of things and it creates a wrong expectation with church planters. And so I don't know, that's, that's what, that's what caused me to write the article. And, and um, yeah. I don't know. Well, I, you know, and I, when I read it, Phil, I just saw a ton of wisdom in it, which is, of course, why I wanted to have you on the program to talk about that. I mean, I, I, I definitely um, see your point in a lot of ways, but let me, let me gently push back as somebody who mostly agrees with you, but also I do think that, um, uh, you know, there's not a simple answer to this. Number one, the Bible itself says that the workman is worthy of his hire, that um, I, I don't think it is unreasonable for someone who is called to a vocation by God to serve the body of Christ, that the body of Christ shouldn't, you know, stand up and actually financially support that person. That's number one. And number two, I had a, uh, I've plant, I've been involved in planting a couple of churches myself over the years. And one of the guys that uh, helped me plant a church probably about 15 or 18 years ago here in Charlotte was also a retired clergyman. And he, he had a theory. He said, if you go to the Old Testament, they said, get 10 of the leaders of the tribe together. They will tithe one, you know, their income, the 10, 10 leaders, and that will pay for the priest. And my, I'm, I'm probably butchering the actual Bible reference here, but the, but he used that story to make this point that the priest should be paid one, you know, the same salary as the average of the 10 leaders of the church. I mean, if you kind of do the math on that, and uh, that's probably a pretty good income. That's probably a pretty good wage. Um, so hit me, hit me with some responses to those two ideas. Well, you're exactly right. It's not a black and white issue. And, you know, people f fail because of a lot of reasons. There's, a mul as you know, there's a multitude of reasons um, pastors implode or have a failure of some kind. Um, but, you know, I think of Paul being a tent maker, you know, he was out there making tents during his ministry, um, whether he did it to pay the bills or make a living or whether he did it because he had nothing better to do. I can't, I'm not an expert on that, but I just think it's more to me, a risk issue. I just feel like, you know, in my business, I'm a filmmaker. I, I live and work in Hollywood and we have free internships. You want to go into filmmaking really bad. Great get sandwiches for a year, you know, go work on a, the set, um, go work at Starbucks on weekends to pay your bills and, and get on a film set for free and do whatever it takes to learn the ropes. And I think that kind of commitment, that kind of drive, I don't know, that's, that's, when I did that, it prepared me for a much longer haul in the industry. So I, I, I totally agree with you. You know, I think they're perfectly wonderful people who make a salary from day one. However, I will say this uh, at the same time, I, you know, right before I wrote that piece, I heard from two or three people. Uh, in fact, what gave me the impetus to write it was I'd gotten a couple emails from very successful pastors, very effective pastors who all said, you know what? I look back at my days when I had a second job as some of the best in my ministry. They said, I don't know why, but it, we just have great memories of that time because we were plugged into the community. We were talking to people, both Christian and non-Christian. 
And it was just an interesting thing for them to say. So, I, you know, it's uh, you're right. It's not a black and white issue, but I would like for church planting organizations to just maybe consider that a little bit of risk could be a really positive thing for the long haul. I would rather be people be tested earlier in their ministry than be tested late in their ministry, if that makes any sense. Yeah, well, I think that is an outstanding point, <laughs> be tested early rather than later. Because as you know, Phil, you and I have said before, a lot of times uh, young pastors will rise based on some competence they have. Maybe they're fantastic communicators or they've got a charismatic personality. Uh, but then if, if their character is not being developed along the way, if they're not facing trials and being tested along the way, if it's just too easy, in other words, um, they end up becoming, you know, wildly successful, at least in the eyes of the world and the metrics of the world without really having their character tested in a way that um, would allow them to, to maintain long obedience and long faithfulness at that level. I don't remember who it was. It may have been Susan Sontag said the reason she writes is to learn what she's thinking. And so half of the stuff I post on my blog is stuff I'm wrestling with at the moment. And um, I think that's a good question. We just need to be asking, um, is it worth it, you know, giving them a little bit of risk at the beginning to just kind of test their metal and make sure they're really built for the long haul. So yeah, it, it's, it's, but it's not a black and white issue. And I certainly know people that started making a salary early on and, you know, in ministry full time, and they turned out to be great. So it could go both ways. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate the article. I think it raised some really, really important issues, and I strongly recommend the article to anyone um, listening to us. I'll have a link to it in the show notes for this podcast episode. Hey, Phil, there's another article that you wrote that I wanted to talk to you about as well, because th this one hits a little bit closer to the bullseye of the things that we do here at Ministry Watch, and that is uh, specifically you asked the question of what should our response be to the materials written by fallen pastors. And I think Ravi Zacharias would be one that comes almost immediately to mind because, you know, we have clearly an example of a moral failure on the part of Ravi Zacharias, uh, behavior that if we had known it when he was alive would have plainly disqualified him uh, from ministry by any biblical standard. And yet there is also no denying that Ravi produced some amazing stuff. He was brilliant um, for all of his flaws. There was some, you know, there was a clarity of, uh, at least I'm, I'm reluctant to say this the way, I'm, the way I'm about to say, but there was, you know, there was a forcefulness and a clarity with, in the way that he defended the Christian faith that um, I learned from, and I'm guessing you learned from, or you wouldn't have maybe written this article, but what do we do with that now? I mean, what do we do with um, his material uh, whenever he's clearly become toxic and not without reason? That's so true. And, and, I, and it's interesting because um, a lot of these guys were brilliant before they crashed and burned in some way. Now, it's what, what's really—and and I talk about it on two different levels. For instance, uh, one level is the church or the ministry itself. And, and there have been cases, for instance, in one case— I went in to help a church who the pastor had had a moral failure, massive moral failure, huge church, tens of thousands of members. And uh, we brought in a team and within 48 hours got everything he'd ever done offline, all of his podcasts, his books, tapes, 
every trace of him YouTube done because I've learned as a, as a communications professional that your enemies will come back and use that to make fun of the church. They'll make fun of, you know, Christianity. They'll use, you know, the resources of a fallen person online. So as a church, when I'm working with a church, I do want to get rid of everything I possibly can. However, then there's the personal question in my library. I still have Ravi Zacharias books because as you said, he was a brilliant, brilliant apologist. And I have books. I've got Mein Kampf by Hitler. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm researching, I'm writing stuff. So I want to have a wide perspective from a lot of people. Now, what's interesting is I got some pushback on social media from a woman who had had a really bad experience with a pastor who had sexually abused her years before. And rightly so, she was extremely angry. And she said, don't call it moral failure. It's, it's sex abuse. It's criminal. And she just jumped all over me and she said, no, we should wipe those things off the map. And so I understand the, the strong feelings of someone who's been the victim of one of these kind of situations. But ultimately, I think while I want to get, you know, I want to get it out of the church library, I want to get it off the church website and all those things. When it comes to us, you know, as individuals, I think that's a personal decision. Guys like you and I, we're researching these kind of things and we want to know what people said at a certain time. And, you know, the other pushback I got that was interesting was people said, well, we'd have to throw out most of the Bible. You know, David had an affair. And um, I look at that differently because David was not a pastor. You know, that was Nathan's job. And had Nathan been the one that had had a, you know, moral failure, that would be a different question. But, um, you know, I, I, you know look, I look at Eli and uh, his sons and how evil his sons had become. And look what God did to Eli. So I think there is punishment out there. And I think we have to be responsible. But it's an interesting question, because I've had so many people come up to me over the years and say, okay, what do I do about, you know, his books or her books? And I still have them in my library. So I should I throw them in the trash? And that's just an individual decision I think everybody has to make. Yeah, well, I, I think you make a good distinction, and an important distinction, and a helpful distinction between the public and the private. In other words, the the church, um, you know, at least my my personal recommendation. We really haven't taken a stand on this at Ministry Watch. I haven't written about it, but uh, but I really did like what you said. Is that you know, if as a church, I do think that we have to if you will, sanitize ourselves of those resources. Uh, I don't know how long that should last, whether it should be in perpetuity or whether it should be for a season. Because one of the thing, one of the problems with Ravi Zacharias in particular is that there he has no opportunity to repent. He has no opportunity to say, at least at least in our presence here on here in this earth, right? Um, I, so my my strong recommendation would be to any church that at a minimum that you take a moratorium from the use of those resources. And I don't know how long that should be, but probably for a significant period of time. Uh, now, on the private level, I'm with you. I mean, I've got, um, you know, I've got some of Robbie's books, uh, you know, on the other side of the wall out outside my little office here. And um, and I'm also I read a book recently. In fact, I had I interviewed him for one of my podcasts. Russ Ramsey wrote a book called Rembrandt is in the Wind about artists and some of the great artists in history. And one of the artists that he featured was an artist named Caravaggio, who wrote who who painted some of the great religious art in history that we still uh, look at today and find it very moving. And that guy was just a completely reprehensible person. 
he was out of his mind. I, it's funny you say that because I was in Italy literally day before yesterday. And uh, in Rome, we went to a church that was doing a Caravaggio exhibit because I'm a huge follower of his work. It's just his work is absolutely stunning and amazing. And particularly when he did the, the David holding the head of Goliath, you know, the head of Goliath is Caravaggio's head. He didn't paint himself as the hero. He painted himself as the bad guy. And uh, that says so much. But but you're exactly right. He had a raging ego. He was completely out of control and he had multiple times he could have straightened up, but he didn't. And he died yeah. a miserable death on the run. And um, so you're exactly right. But we still venerate his paintings are amazing. I mean, we still study his paintings. And Well, and, and I do. And there, like you said, there was a there's a difference maybe between somebody who's a preacher, someone in ministry versus some like, you know, Caravaggio was an artist, but he did do religious work. And, and it is work that that uh, we venerate today because of its religious significance. I'm also taken by your example of David, um, between David and Moses, who was also a murderer, and Paul, who was not technically a murderer, but he, you know, he guarded the robes while they stoned Stephen, the first martyr. Yeah, I mean, if you, you know, those three men, um, murderers or, or accomplices to murder, uh, wrote a significant portion of the Bible. Um, and so, you know, what are we supposed to do with that? I would have to say, though, that one of, again, one of the differences is that A, um, they repented, they turned back to God, and um, that, that was a significant difference. And B, um, God himself, <laughs> you know, said it was, said we should read his book, that we should read the stuff that those guys wrote. <laughs> so we, we kind of have it on good authority that we can keep reading their stuff. But I do think, though, that that, that that does highlight the fact that, again, there's no real clear, hard and fast line here, is there? Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, that uh, the stuff God uses is really quite amazing, and I'm I'm not gonna, you know, make the call for him. You know, I've got as, as you were talking, I was thinking I got the biography of Jim Jones in my library right over there, and yeah. uh, I've got Jim Baker's biography. So you know, it's I, I want to know about what is going through these guys' minds, what's what they're thinking about, and it's interesting to me. But I, I could understand that if something makes you feel uncomfortable, you know has an impact on your faith, get rid of it. It's not worth keeping for that reason. But um, I do like to hear from a lot of perspectives, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the Bible says that God used the jawbone of an ass to um, slay an army. And every time I look in the mirror, I am glad that that passage is in there, because sometimes I feel like, you know, some of the things that I say might be characterized in that way as well. So, a good way to maybe wrap this up is that one of the things when you mentioned Moses and David and, 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 and Paul and these guys is I want to finish well. I, I think the thing that drives me is so many people in the Bible did not finish well. And I just think I want to finish. I have such a, you know, I, I look at pastors. I know pastors that had thousands and thousands of members and are completely out of the ministry now because of a failure uh, relatively late in life. Um, and I just think I, I did, God really convicts me about that. And I'm just thinking, you know, I, I'm always worried that I, I just want to finish well. I, I just want to make that a big priority. And I think all Christians should have that is a real goal out there. Yeah. Amen. Well, Phil, I appreciate that. That's a, that I say amen to that. And that is a super good word. And once again, to everybody listening, I will link, um, 
to Phil's article, both articles that we've talked about today in the show notes for this episode. So Phil, again, thank you so much for being on. Anything, any final word that you want to say? I'm not, anything I'm not smart enough to ask you? I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm grateful that you'd even, you're reading my stuff. I mean, that's yeah. just quite, quite, an, I'm, a, I'm honored. So thank you for doing that. And thanks for having me on. You bet. No, it's good stuff. And I really appreciate you sharing with us today. Thanks so much. That brings to a close this episode of the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, if you like what you heard today and you want a double dose of Phil Cook, go to the ministrywatch.com website and type his name into the search engine other conversations that I've had with Phil in the recent past will pop right up. A reminder that I will also have a link to Phil's articles in the show notes for this episode. Before we go, I'd like to remind you that Ministry Watch is donor-supported. We take no money from ministries. All of our content is free, no paywall. That means we couldn't do what we do without faithful donors. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that you you donors are the real heroes of this operation. So if you'd like to join that heroic group by pitching in to make sure that Ministry Watch remains a viable endeavor, you can do that by going to ministrywatch.com and hitting the donate button at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosell and Jeff McIntosh. We get database technical and editorial support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Christina Darnell, Emily Kern, Rod Pitzer, and Casey Suddeth. I'm Warren Smith, and you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.